Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, we're going to be this morning, easy book to find, first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, get ushers coming up the aisle right now who would love to get a Bible into your hands. If you forgot your Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, for sure, grab one of these. Take it home as our gift to you. Open up to Genesis chapter 1 as we're going to start this morning. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 1, it's, it's, it's interesting if you see what Jesus talked the most about while he was on earth. You'd be surprised. Maybe it was, was it heaven? Did he talk the most about heaven? Or, or, or maybe it was hell? Did he talk mostly about hell? Was that what he talked mostly about? Actually, what Jesus talked the most about was the kingdom of God. Matthew 4, 17, it says that, that when Jesus started preaching, his first preaching that he, that he preaches right away, his first message was, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's what he talked about all the time. In fact, even at the end of his earthly life as he's hanging on the cross, remember the thief on the cross beside him, what did he say? He said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. This theme of kingdom just all the way through the Gospels. And, and in fact, when Jesus rises again from the dead, when he's with the disciples those 40 days before he ascends to heaven, it says in Acts chapter 1, what did he do during that time? He was teaching them about the kingdom. Jesus laying out for us all through the Gospels. He's laying out for us, hey, let me tell you about the story of God's kingdom. And when he shows up on earth, and he says the kingdom is at hand. What's he doing? He's stepping into the middle of a story that's already been going. He's saying this, this kingdom you've been hearing about all the way through the Old Testament, the kingdom is here. And so the, through this series, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to track through what is the kingdom story. Now, why do we do that? I think we do that for one reason, is this, that stories are important. Why would Jesus be, be saying, hey, I want to tell you the story of the kingdom? Why would Scripture be this, this overarching story? Because stories are important. Stories shape us. I mean, think about stories in your life that you, you heard growing up and, and how they've shaped your life. I mean, there, there, there are stories for me that I, mean, I think about the, a super impactful story in my life. It's, it's a classic story. It's a timeless story. It's a story that will be told for hundreds of years, I'm sure. It's Rocky 1 to 4, right? Like that, that shaped me as a kid, man. You, you can't watch Rocky without like something building up in you, right? And, and even now, right, I'm, I'm older and, and even this week, right, I'm battling the flu. What song's going on in my head? I the tiger, right? Like, I'm like, I can beat this thing, right? I just need a music montage where I'm lifting weights and stuff, and I think I can conquer this, right? It just kind of affects you. Now, now, seriously, though, on a more serious note, we're shaped by cultural stories. They, they give us meaning. They, they give us purpose. They, they help us answer the big questions of, of who am I? What is the problem that needs to be solved and, and how will we solve it? What's the end going to be like? These cultural narratives. You, you think of a big cultural story that, that, that tries to answer these questions. Think about the American dream. I mean, what's the American dream? The problem is we don't have enough security or safety or comfort, so, so how do we achieve those things? Well, you, you work hard, you dream big, and, and eventually you'll achieve that. Well, you'll, you'll have the, the great family and the kids and the, and the beautiful home and the cars and the retirement. 
And we shape our values and, and, and our purposes. We, we, we shape these from these, these meta-narratives, these overarching stories over our cultures and our lives. And, and what does it look like? We grab a hold of sayings like, be true to yourself. I mean, where's that come from? Why, why do we grab a hold of be true to yourself? It's, it's a story. It's a meta-narrative over our culture that says be true to yourself because someone else from another culture under another story might step in and go, what do you mean be true to yourself? Why not true to your family? Why not, why not true to your tribe or, 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 or true to your community? The problem hits us when the stories we build our lives on fall short. We begin to ask, is, is there a narrative that can bear the weight of our soul, that can answer the questions of our hearts? Because here's the thing, it's possible to call yourself a Christ follower, say, I'm a Christian, and yet, yet you're shaped, your life is shaped by other narratives as opposed to the narrative of the kingdom of God. And, and you can say, no, like, like I'm following Jesus, but, but really my life's all about me. About my individual fulfillment. And, and we include God in our story, but the story really is about us. And we need a more compelling story to bear the weight of our soul. And Jesus steps in and he says, the kingdom is here. He says, there, there's a story being told that each one of us are a part of, a story that speaks over our lives. And Jesus says that story, when he shows up, that story is coming to a climax. And he says, I am here. The kingdom is here. The problem is being solved. So in this series, what we want to do over the next few weeks, we, we understand that a lot of you, you know the, the different stories of the Bible, the little individual stories, but, but to see, hey, how does this whole thing fit together? That it's not just a bunch of fragmented writings written over thousands of years, but there's a grand story that God is telling here. And this morning, we're going to see the beginning of this story of the kingdom. We're going to see the characters that are introduced. We're, we're going to see the crisis that needs to be solved and resolved. We're going to see the massive truth about who God is, the truth of, of who we are as a part of his kingdom story. We're going to see who Satan is and, and who, what, what sin is as, a, as an invader into this kingdom of God and our desperate need for rescue. So before we jump in, why don't you join with me as we pray for us this morning that God would, God would reveal himself to us. Lord God, thank you for your word that you, you've clearly shown yourself to us. Lord, thank you for the, the grand story of your kingdom God, I pray this morning as we open up your word, God, that we would hear the story, or maybe for the first time, Lord, for sure that we would hear it in a way, God, that you transform our hearts. Again, Lord, we don't want just more information, but God, we want transformation. So I pray this morning as, as, as your word is spoken, Lord that your spirit would press in our hearts, that we would be changed because of what we hear, God, that we'd hear your story of your kingdom and you as king, and we leave here different because of that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes this morning, our first point this morning is this. What we're gonna see right away when we hear this kingdom story, the first character we're gonna be introduced to is God, and God is the king of this kingdom. God is the king. 
You, right away you see the king at work, and it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And it says in verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light that it was good. It goes on in verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it, it happens. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together, and it happens. Verse 11, and God said, verse 14, and God said, over and over again, it keeps saying, and God said, and, and, and stuff happens. How do we know that God is a king? Because listen, kings don't pick up hammers and saws and go build stuff. Kings give a word, and it happens. God is the king. The power of his word accomplishes what needs to be done. He speaks and creation is born. God is the supreme creator king. He is, he's transcendent over his creation. What do I mean by that? I mean God is not a part of creation. He's distinct from creation. Creation is not a part of God. He is supreme king above, transcendent over creation as the powerful king of creation. I mean, how powerful, we, we know so powerful that it says he creates just by his word. He just speaks and light happens. But it's interesting in verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word there, created, it's, it's a word in Hebrew that's only used for God because it means that he creates out of nothing. You and I can create things. we got to take other materials and put them together. This word here means out of nothing God creates. Something that wasn't there before, and here it is. God shows up as the powerful king. He is, he is the first cause, the uncaused, the eternal cause. He was not created. He is the creator. He always was, always will be. And he brings creation, this kingdom, into an abrupt beginning out of nothing. In fact, I love what the scientist Robert Zastrow said. He was the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And he said this. He was talking about how scientists, we've been trying to figure out everything, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, and tracing it back in time, going, man, how does this work? Cause and effect, cause and effect. And they come to this idea of, no, you know what? There needs to be a first cause, an uncaused cause. And then he says this. It seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock, and he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. God spoke as the creator God, and the world began. What does that mean? It means this for us here today as part of this story. You're not a, a result of time and chance. You're not just an accident that appeared, which is the, the secular story that we're told, right? The, the story that provides no reason, no purpose, no value. You just showed up because just time and chance. And yeah, we read here that God said, no, I create with purpose. 
There's a purpose in his creation. That, that creation is a reflection of all the, the beauty and, and infinite goodness that's found in God. Because all the way through Genesis 1, as he creates, it says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Where does this goodness of creation come from? It comes because it's reflecting the character of God. In fact, Romans chapter 1, Paul says that all of creation points us to the reality that we would know that there's a God. And then God didn't just create it, wind it up, and set it to go on its own. No, this, this sovereign king rules over this creation, sustained by his power, not just created by his power. That There's, there's nothing, absolutely nothing in, in Genesis chapter 1 that's not under his control. Listen, there's nothing, absolutely nothing in Genesis 2, Genesis 3. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in the history of the world. There's nothing in your life or in my life that is not under his control. Everything, everything under his kingly rule in this kingdom. And you see it all over Genesis 1 where, where he, he says to the stars, hey, here's where you're going to go and that's where you're going to stay, and they stay. He says to the water, you're going to come up to this point and you're not going to go any further than that. The, the moon and the sun rise on earth. Why? Why? According to the power of God as he, as he, as he holds it all in orbit, sustaining every single thing. The reality is the only reason you and I draw breath this morning is because God is sustaining our breath this morning. I mean, even if you're here as somebody who hates God, the reality is that, that breath going in and out right now comes from the very one you hate. God sustains it all. God sustains all of creation, every detail of creation sustained by His power. If you, if you were to pull away God's power just for a split second, the universe would cease to exist. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the world, the universe, by the word of his power. I love Colossians 1.17, that in Christ all things hold together. God is the king of this kingdom. Secondly is this. You and I are created in the image of that king. You and I are created in the image of the king. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, so you and I created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean to be created in God's image? It means this. You are a unique reflection of God in a way that's different from all other creation. We're the only part of creation that God just didn't speak into existence. No, it says that God breathed life into humankind. We reflect God, our King, differently. We're, we're, we're crafted as this reflection of God. Now, for sure, there are infinite differences that separate us from God. We're not God. Yet there's something about us that's different from everything else in creation. I, I kind of think of it this way, that when you ever see like somebody's son or daughter and you're like, man, you are the spitting image of your mom. Or man, you look just like your dad. You remind me so much of your father. 
In almost the same way, you, you can look around this room and look at every single person in this room and you can say, you are a reflection of the king. You're a reflection of God the Father. So it's not just that, that we're sustained by the power of God, dependent on him, but our, our very nature, our very character, who we are, uniquely created by God, we're uniquely connected to his character and his nature. Now, part of what this means then, if we bear the image of God, there's a, a purpose now for us. You, you can see the purpose in, in the verse that, he just, that follows right after. It says he, we were created in God's image. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. First, it says that God blessed them. That, that word blessed there, it's, it's a relational word. So, so what does this look like? What's the purpose we have in the, created in the image of God? The first purpose is we have relationship with God. In the Garden of Eden, there was this, this unhindered fellowship between, between God and Adam and Eve, this, this relationship, this, this picture of God walking with them in the garden, just a, a pure, unhindered fellowship in, in, in a way that none of the rest of creation had with God. So part of the purpose that we are created in his image is to have a relationship with him. Another purpose is he says, go and, and be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. Here's what I believe God's saying. Your one purpose is a relationship with him. Another purpose is to, to go out and, and take the beauty of the garden and spread it to the rest of creation. We're given this job of, of take the beauty of God's garden, the peace, the, the shalom of the garden, and you're, you're to take that to the rest of the earth, to subdue the rest of the earth. So what's God saying? He's saying, listen, I'm the king of this kingdom. I have ultimate authority, but I, I want you to be my ambassador, so I'm giving you authority. T take this the peace that you experience here in this garden with me and make the rest of my creation like that. Bring my grace, bring my beauty, bring my order, bring my peace, bring my love, bring my rule to the rest of creation. What am I saying? I'm saying this. I believe we're created to, to reproduce God's glory to the ends of the earth. He says, fill, fill the earth. Multiply, fill the earth, fill the earth with, with God's image. Take that image that you've been crafted in and, and you multiply it to the ends of the earth. We see when you get to Genesis 11, remember the story of the Tower of Babel? They all get together and, and they're trying to build this big city together and they want to build a huge tower to say, look how great we are. They wanted to make their name great. Part of the sin going on there that, that God judged them for was, was, hey, you're supposed to go out and make God's name great. But instead of going out to make God's name great, you huddled together to make your own name great. God says, no, take my name, take my image, and go. It's why as a, as a church, we're all about being ascending church. It's why we're excited to, to say, hey, hey, we're supporting another couple in our church to send them out on missions. Why, man, we're so excited what God's doing in Africa right now. Well, what God's doing is as he sends another, a couple to Papua New Guinea, we're going to talk about them next week. As God, as God expands the church into Mexico City, why? Because we want to be a church that sends out, that goes out. It's why in your small groups, it's not just an opportunity to gather together in a smaller group and hide out and huddle up together. No, it's an opportunity to be encouraged and grown and go out even as a small group. Hey, how do we bless the neighborhood we live in? 
Hey, could you encourage me as I reach out in my workplace? Hey, could you help me as I step out into my school and I, and I spread this good news of the goodness of God? That's why I've said this before that I've heard that people say that, that Christians are, are, are supposed to be, they're, they're, they're like manure. Work with me for a second, all right? Like if, if you take manure and you spread it out, Healthy things grow because of being spread out. You take manure and you huddle it all up together in a pile, it just stinks really bad, right? As the church, we're called to go. We're called to to spread out. We're called not to huddle up, but to scatter. You picture the beauty of this garden scene Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates by his word. He's, he's sustaining it by his power. He's, he's displayed his goodness and, and all the beauty of creation. And, and humankind enjoys this relationship with him in, in perfect harmony, that in perfect fellowship, and, and being used by God to, to spread this, this peace, this shalom of the Garden of Eden to the rest of the world. How awesome is this kingdom? And then sin invades the kingdom. The third point this morning is that sin invades the kingdom. God is a God who's ruling this kingdom. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So God's ruling this kingdom. Don't miss this. To, to be made in the image of God means, means what? It means that you're ultimately responsible to God. Right? He's our king. He's not just the king, but, but he's our king. He's in charge. He gets to set the rules. He gets to say, hey, this is how things work in the kingdom. And, and because we're in his kingdom, we say, yeah, we're going to follow your rules. But, but it's hard, though, right? I think very early on, we don't have to take much time learning this, but very early on, we start to learn this idea of, well, maybe I'm in charge. If you've got a two-year-old at home, you're like, yeah, it starts real early, Right? Like, nobody is in charge of me. I'm the one in charge of this. I make my own rules. I set my own pace. I remember with our kids, they're the one that this, this was revealed the clearest. And, and I, I don't want to, you know, say a name because I don't want to embarrass my kids. But um, we didn't have any other kids at the time, so we, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. Um, all right, it's McKinley, my oldest, right? And I think I've told this story before, but, but uh, we had a kind of a rule in our house. McKinley as a kid, maybe you have kids like this too. She didn't always like to wear clothes in the house. She's kind of like, I'm free, right? And so we had a rule that if a company comes over, you got to put clothes on, okay? Kind of a good rule to have, right? I think everybody should probably have that rule. Um, and so company was coming over, and so I remember saying to McKinley, and she was like two years old, hey, hey McKinley, two or three, hey, McKinley, you got to put some clothes on because company's coming over. And McKinley goes, no. I'm like, What? I'm the king of this house, right? So I'm like, no, 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 put some clothes on, McKinley, because company's coming over. No, Daddy. McKinley, come here. I'm being serious. Put some clothes on. No, Daddy. So now I'm like starting to, okay, what are the tools that I remember that my parents used on me, right? So I, I brought out that really good one where I went, McKinley, Daddy says put some clothes on. 
And McKinley looked me straight in the face and said, Daddy, McKinley says no. <laughs> right? we, we like to think we're the king, don't we? We like to think I'm in charge. But, but you read the biblical doctrine of creation, it, go, it totally goes against any of that thinking because the reality is everything we have, we've been given by God. So, so you and I are holy, completely accountable to God, responsible to God for everything we say and everything we do. God's in charge, and yet sin invades this kingdom, a new character introduced to the story of God's kingdom. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Who's this character? Well, what's this character coming into the garden? This, this serpent. And Revelation 2 9 calls Satan this. It says, That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So we, we know this is Satan stepping in to the picture. Now, when we think about Satan, we, we can get some pretty wonky ideas about who Satan is. We, we can forget that God is the creator king and Satan is just a creature, he was created. All right, so when you, when you think about this, this battle in the kingdom as, as sin invades the kingdom, this, this is not some sort of battle like Star Wars, right? It's like, well, there's, there's a light side and there's a dark side and they're both just as strong. We're never sure who's going to win in the battle. That's not the kingdom of God. Satan is not supreme. He's not all-powerful. He's not sustaining all things. He's not sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and Satan is subservient to God. God's in control of all things. Satan is controlled. And so, so as we trace the story of God's kingdom, we, we trace it all through Scripture in this series, just remember that, that, that God's the one in control. So when we come to Jacob being sold into slavery, Sorry, Joseph being sold into slavery and, and then the Egyptians enslaving the entire people of God. Remember, remember, God is in control of every bit of that. <coughs> when we see evil kings ruling over Israel and the kingdom being divided, God's in control of every bit of that. When you get to the New Testament, you see Jesus being falsely accused, convicted, tried, and hung on a cross to die. That's not the wheels of history turning and just crushing Jesus. God is in control of those wheels, turning them for his purposes. When you see Christians today taking the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, and they're persecuted, and they're killed for their faith, God's in control of every detail even there. In your own life, when you look and you wonder, God, where are you? Listen, when we get to the end of the kingdom story, and we have an opportunity to look back over our life story and God's kingdom story. You're going to see a loving and careful sovereign rule of God the King. Satan is not in control. Satan is not as powerful as God. But here's the thing to be, to be aware of. Satan is smart. He is crafty. He's cunning. And he, and he knows just where to attack, where to invade. He's been around since the beginning of, 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 of creation. He's been created by God. He's been around for a long time. So he's a brilliant 
student of human nature. He, he knows where to press in your heart. He knows what temptation to, to, to tempt you with perfectly. He's like the best fisherman ever who's fished the same spot for the longest time, knows exactly what bait to use. So what does he do? Chapter 3, verse 1 goes on. It says, he said to the woman, he goes after Eve. He, he goes after her. Why? She didn't hear the command of God directly. She would have heard it through Adam. So he's, he's going after her. And it begins with this, this innocent question, seemingly innocent. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's he saying? He's saying, did God really say that? He then begins to, to, to press in on her heart saying, hey, you know what, maybe God's keeping something from you. Maybe you're missing something that, that, that God's not giving you. And, and you know what, maybe if you just ate from that tree, you would actually get what God's holding from you. And what's Satan doing? He's saying, listen, you can have goodness apart from God. He's so cunning. He's not showing up with, with hooves and a pitchfork saying, I'm Satan, the murderer of your soul. Follow me. That's not how he does it. He's smarter than that. He, he comes to us in ways we wouldn't expect as a, an angel of light. And he twists scripture. He questions God's word, the word of the king. Is, is, that, is that really that good? Is, is God really saying this? I mean, it's kind of old-fashioned. Do you think it's really what God's saying? He begins to question God's character. Is God really good? Is, does he really want your best? I mean, look what's going on. I mean, is, is God a good king? And then he promises goodness. Here's the thing, though. Satan's not going to show you the end game of what he's promising you. He, he doesn't show you the destruction that follows when we give in to the sin, when we break the king's laws. He doesn't show you the ruined relationships. He doesn't show you the broken dreams. He doesn't show you the, the hurt and the pain. And I've said this before. It's, it's a pretty common saying that, that sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. It'll always keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll always take you further than you want to go. Jesus says in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies and he's a murderer. He promises goodness that ends in destruction. and He brings sin into the kingdom. Now, now how does sin actually invade the kingdom? It's important as we're, we're reading this story here to understand this is our story. In Romans 5, 12, the apostle Paul said, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. All right, so, so this isn't just a story, a historical account of two people who sinned a long time ago. No, no, this is your story and my story here. Genesis 3 is a reflection of our hearts, so, so we have to ask, man, how does sin invade then? How does sin invade my heart? Well, just like in Genesis 3, it's when we reject God's word. I mean, Satan says, did God really say this? When Satan says to you, hey, really, really, is this what God really says? Like, like, what do you feel about it? And Satan drawing Eve, Satan drawing us to become judges of God's word, the king's word. 
mean, that, that's the huge deal of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's this idea that, that you get to be the one to judge what's good and what's evil. You get to be, say, to be the one that says, no, this is good and this is evil. And I'm going to live to the standards that I've set about good and evil. And when we sin, what we're saying is, listen, I know what's true and good. So I'll choose to accept for myself. I'm not going to follow the word of the king. I'll determine what's good for me. God doesn't. And so this morning, what, what voice are you listening to? What word are you submitting your life to? We reject God's word. Here's another way that sin invades the kingdom. When we reject God's authority. And this morning, who rules your heart? Who's really the king? Who has authority? You know, one of my favorite worship songs right now is a song by Hillsong called So Will I. Have you heard this song? It's so good. It's this idea, I mean, it's taken right out of a creation story where it says, you know, God says to the stars, you go there, and they respond in immediate obedience. And the song says, if they obey, so will I. When we sin, what we're saying is, God, you're the author of my life, but you're not the authority of my life. You're not the king. And the tragedy of that is we're denying the goodness of God, the grace of God, the love of God. Here in chapter 3, Eve falls for Satan's lies. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Like, this is good. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the consequence of sin in the kingdom is instantly revealed. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Shame and guilt for the first time enter into the kingdom. And we still feel the consequences of shame today goes on in verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Fear enters the kingdom. Verse 9 says, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Awesome, right? Conflict enters the kingdom. Adam instantly, instantly, he doesn't just have conflict against Eve. You, you can read that and go, wow, he just threw his wife under the bus. He first blames God, though. Did he catch that? God, it's the woman you gave me. Man, you blew this. You gave me the wrong woman. This is on you, God. Blames Eve. She's the one who gave it to me. Now there's conflict, not just vertically, there's conflict horizontally. Eve blames the devil. I mean, they're doing everything they can do to say, this is not our fault. 
It's somebody else's fault. You, you, you got to understand the, the family I grew up in. You, you, you don't know the, the week that I've had, man. You don't know the person that I live with. You don't, you don't understand my kids. You don't know my parents. You don't know the work environment. You don't know. And, and what do we do? We just blame, we blame, we blame. We're trying to push it off to, to someone else. And, and for the first time, they feel the sting of shame, and they're doing everything they can to, to cover themselves and to push the shame onto somebody else. even fearing and ashamed to be seen by God. I mean, think of the contrast here of the kingdom we were just talking about where they had this perfect relationship with God. There was, there was fellowship and delight and, and in a moment it turns to distrust and to fear. That They used to run to God and His boundless love and now they're running away from God. Fearing even being seen by Him. Think about the, the conflict. There's this beautiful relationship that was supposed to be Adam and Eve together. God says in, in Genesis 2, he says that the two of you become one flesh. It's this, the closest human relationship we can have on earth. And it's, it's now filled with pain and sorrow and conflict. And we see the results of it. And, and God even says, here's what's going to happen. Now he goes on in, in chapter 3. And he says, here's what's going to happen because of this sin. This horizontal relationship you're supposed to have with, your, with each other. And, and Adam, your, your responsibility to care and to lead is now going to be pushed and opposed and, and, and considered oppressive and unfair. And Eve, you're no longer going to be cared for with a sacrificial love from your husband. But, but now he's either going to overpower you or he's going to neglect you. So we, we saw this in our last series, that, that sin always has a vertical effect and a horizontal effect. That there's no sin in our life that, de that doesn't cause a problem vertically, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, that does not cause a problem vertically and horizontally. Ultimately, here you see the consequences they spill to everything that God had entrusted Adam and Eve to care for. They, they were the ones responsible for creation. You're the ones in charge of it. So now their sin, all of that sin, falls onto the entire kingdom. Death invades the kingdom. Adam and Eve instantly experience spiritual death. The relationship with God now fractured. They, they, they and all of creation eventually experience physical death. You see it right away in Genesis 4 where, where death now enters in murder, where, where Cain kills Abel. You read Genesis 5, and in the genealogies, you see repeated over and over again, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. Just, just death all over chapter 5. But we know that's not just the only consequence of sin that's invaded the kingdom, that death isn't just the end, but we're responsible to the king, that every single one of us in this room will stand before God as judge So where's our hope? I mean, that, that's the problem for sure. Sin is our, our greatest problem. Here's our last point this morning. The king will rescue his kingdom. The king will rescue his kingdom. And I'm so glad that the, the beginning of this story of the kingdom isn't all just doom and gloom, but, but we, we do see clearly our need for rescue because we hear 
what the kingdom looks like because of sin. But in the midst of the darkness of sin, there's this this word of hope right away in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, it says this. Lord God talking to the serpent, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in the midst of all this, God's saying, here's the consequences for sin. Here's the kingdom now disrupted because of sin. In the middle of it, he gives a a hope of good news, the gospel we would call it. It's the first good news given. Yes, there'll be conflict. There'll be enmity between, between Satan and humankind. But one will come, he says, that there'll be a battle and, and yes, the, the one who comes, his heel will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent. The very beginning as sin enters the kingdom, the, the God, the creator king is also God, the gracious king. He says, here's my grace right here. Here's the promise I have for you. A promise planned, Ephesians 1 says, before the beginning of time. A promise to, to bring men and women back to himself. Men and women caught in sin that he'd, he'd redeem them. He would rescue us from sin. And this, this promise is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see as the kingdom story goes on that it's, it's repeated and expanded upon Noah given a covenant promise. I'll bless my people. Now in order to see the promise of the king all throughout the story of this kingdom... I want to show you something, probably something you shouldn't do when you're reading a story. Let's go to the end of the story before we see what happens. Go to Genesis chapter 20. You're reading a book, you're like, I just want to see how this thing ends. Let's see how this thing ends. I want us to see the, the hope of the gospel. And we're going to come back to this at the very end of the series, but I want to give us a glimpse right now that, that as we're seeing sin and Satan enter into the kingdom, I, I, I want our, to see our hope in the middle of this. As you feel the weight of sin in your life, I want, to, I want to point you to the hope that we have, a hope that can anchor your soul, a hope that can grip you in the midst of the storm, a hope as you walk through life that you can be attached to that's solid, that will bear the weight of your soul. Here's our hope. Look at Revelation 20, verse 10. Satan invades the kingdom, but look what is coming for Satan in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, Satan will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. When, you, when we're reading through the kingdom story and you, you see Satan at work and, man, all these things he's doing, when you feel his attacks day by day, know that he will be defeated. When, when you face temptation in your life, know this, you are struggling against a defeated foe. He has no power over you. Don't underestimate, he's smart, he's cunning, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, but listen, he's defeated If you're a child of the king, you have the spirit of God in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan has no power over you. He's defeated. But here's the great thing. Not only is Satan defeated, but the end of the story tells us this. Sin will also be destroyed. Look look at Revelation 21, verse 1. 
It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Holy, pure, no sin. Heaven coming to earth, creation being restored. Look at verse 27 of chapter 21. But nothing unclean will ever enter the city nor anyone who does was detestable or false, but only those, here are the people who are in this new created city, those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When you see the disastrous effects of of sin in the story, and when, when you're surrounded by it in your life, and you see sin in your life, the effects of sin on you and your family, hold on to this hope that there's coming a day where sin will be destroyed, where there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, where it won't affect you or your family any longer. It will be gone. Why? Because here's the truth of the end of the story. God's kingdom will be fully restored. And that's a picture here in Revelation 21, that there's a new heaven and a new earth. What we long for in the Garden of Eden, the, the peace of God, the shalom, the, the, the safety, the creation restored. Listen, it's coming. We see this hope in Genesis already. When Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? God pursues them. He's looking for them. They're running away in sin, and God is pursuing after them to rescue them. I mean, praise God, He's running after us. That, that he, he, seeks to, to, he, he seeks after the sinners and the guilty. He covers those in shame. He protects the fearful. I mean, here's the great news. When God, when Adam and Eve sinned, it says in Genesis that He drove them out of the garden. And at the east end of the garden, He put an angel with a sword a flaming sword, he said, to guard the garden so they couldn't get back in to the tree of life. Separated from eternal life with God, totally separated. And then you get to Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse one of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life. We get back into the city. We get back to the tree of life. And, and, and how do we get there? Notice what it says. It's because of the lamb, that the, the lamb that's there, the, the lamb of God, those written in the lamb's book of life because of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who covers our shame and sin. We're rescued the kingdom rescued, the kingdom restored. I mean, out of everything we've talked about this morning, I, I hope this, that as the worship team comes up, that you would, you would hold on to this truth. This is the most important. The kingdom story is a story of redemption. And it spans from creation to recreation. And the, the kingdom story is a story of how God is redeeming his people for his glory. I mean, that's what the Bible's about. Every story pointing to the king coming to rescue those who are lost in sin. So when Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom is here, he's saying, you're rescued. Redemption is possible. Why? Because of a redeemer. 
So what does that mean? It means this. Don't miss this. That as we walk through the story of the kingdom of God, that everything is to point us to our Redeemer, to the Lamb, to Jesus as the King who comes to rescue his kingdom. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray even now, Lord, that we would be able to hear the truth, the reality of the kingdom that you created, the kingdom that was invaded by sin, but God, you've redeemed, that you've rescued, and, and even today, you continue to rescue, that, that we could stand here this morning and we could sing praises of, of, of rescue and celebrate that our hearts have been set free, no longer enslaved to sin, that those who put their hope in you, Lord Jesus, no longer our hope in ourselves, no longer our hope in our good works, but, but putting all of our hope in you, that you're the one who lived the life we couldn't live. You died the death we should have died because we've broken the king's laws. And the penalty is death, and Lord Jesus, you took that penalty for us. And we put our hope in you that we can celebrate now. Celebrate the, who we are in this story of the kingdom. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who don't know you, who haven't put their faith, their trust in you, Lord Jesus, haven't turned to say, I want to follow Christ, Lord, that this morning could be a, a morning of celebration for them too. God, that you'd be speaking even now into their hearts, God, with, with your voice that speaks louder than the sin, louder than the lies, louder than any other story that speaks over us. And God, their hearts would be drawn to you today. You draw back your kids who are running in sin, you'd rescue us today. You would draw the hearts of those who don't know you and rescue them today, that we could celebrate the good news that the king has come and he's rescuing his kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.